What were you like when you were 12 years old? When I was 12, I was not too different from who I am now. I was just a bit more unrefined. <laughs> Friends were just becoming really important to me, and I was finding out how social of a person I was and still am. Maybe surprised that I was a hyper kid. I'm an active or at least caffeinated adult. And I adopted my cat Mona when I was 12. She still lives with me today. I was also 12 in a memory that always comes to mind when I read today's scripture. I was not on an annual pilgrimage to any holy city, but instead was traveling home to Memphis from Dallas where my mom's family lives. There was also no temple. Instead, there was a giant McDonald's off the side of the highway with a huge and what I would have considered then as holy playground. It was Texas, so everything was bigger. And this one even had video game consoles that you could play, which was a gold mine for a preteen like me. I was playing one of those video games when I told myself, I'll notice when my family's about to leave or they'll let me know, but I missed it. My family somehow left and it took me a few minutes to start to look for them. I just had the hunch I might have been stranded when my mom ran in crying, there you are. It had not been three days, it was more like three miles on the highway before they realized I had stayed on at McDonald's and was not in the back seat with my iPod like they expected. I wasn't even that upset. It took me a moment to really realize what had happened, and I understood that even with a group as small as seven or eight, it's easy to get caught up and to miss something you might not otherwise miss. This weekend, I finally rewatched Home Alone. It's not Christmas without that movie, in my opinion. And I can't imagine, or I can't help but imagine that Mary had a moment kind of like that moment in which Catherine O'Hara's character realizes what they're missing and screams, Kevin! I love the way the film sets up that moment. It's the perfect storm of a day met with the chaos of so many people that makes it make sense that they missed Kevin and didn't realize until they were halfway across the Atlantic Ocean. Mary and Joseph, too, had plenty of extra family members to help watch out for their preteen son on their pilgrimage from Jerusalem. There would have been dozens of friends and relatives in their group, so it makes sense that it took them a full day to realize they were missing someone and needed to go back. In the New Testament times, family systems were even more complex than the McAllister clan and Home Alone. In the Roman Empire, what historians call the household system was the backbone of society, and that system included but expanded beyond what we think about when we think about family. A household was made up of a father, a mother, and children, but there was a lot more going on. The father was not just dad, but was the master of the house, in charge of everyone and everything. A household usually had slaves and servants, many with their own families living on site. It was common for cousins and grandparents and other extended family to share the same roof. Across all of these relationships were all sorts of rules and hierarchies based on everything from gender to age to socioeconomic status. This household system was important and it was understood to be like a microcosm of the empire itself. So while there was not much flexibility or even really freedom, there was size and connection and stability just like there was with the empire, supposedly. And it's this stability and familiarity within the household system that we see in the trust that Mary and Joseph had as they waited a day before they started asking down the line of relatives to where Jesus may have disappeared. It's also this stable and assumed system that 
Jesus somehow challenges by staying on in Jerusalem without even sending a note to his parents. When I told someone that I was preaching today on this passage, they were surprised that Jesus grew up so quickly. I was too, actually. Wasn't he just a baby in the manger yesterday? I worried that I might be rushing things, but this passage is actually one of the lectionary texts for December 26th this year. So churches across the world will be looking at this story. I think it's fitting, too, because we, like Mary and Joseph, are in a returning of our own. We may not be headed home from Passover, but we're on the heels of one of the highest holidays in our own culture, one that this year someone told me was the most traveled Christmas in recent years. In the Christian calendar, Christmas season is actually 12 days that start on the 25th, so it is still Christmas. The season invites us to look for ways in which Christ has been born in our world and to look for ways in which he might be growing or maturing in and around us. One reason we celebrate Christ's birth during this time of year is its connections of ancient Western traditions that actually predated Christmas, rituals based in nature and related to things like the solstice, which was just last Tuesday. With the longest night behind us, light is coming as each day slightly grows longer. Pretty soon, this light will grow into the long days of spring and summer, days of vibrance and new life. But those long days don't start overnight just like we can't get from baby Jesus to adult Jesus without wondering a bit how it is that he grew up. The story in Luke 2, then, is a quick one, but it's one that we shouldn't miss because it tells us something important about how Christ grows, and it's relevant for us today as we think about the upcoming weeks and the ways in which the things of God might be growing in our own lives. It's easy to overlook this passage. The Gospels are way more concerned with who Jesus was in an adult, as an adult. This is actually the only story we get of childhood Jesus in the Christian Testament. However, it's not the only story that early Christians created. Because household systems were so important to how society functioned in Jesus' time, people really wondered about Jesus' own childhood and his family as his movement began to grow. Different streams of early Christianity collected different stories imagining what Jesus might have been like as a kid. One of my favorites comes from this book called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, something written in the second century that never became a part of the official Bible. It's all stories about Jesus growing up, and in the ninth chapter, there's a dramatic one that you can't miss. Jesus is playing with some other childhood friends on the flat roof of a house when one friend named Zeno, who must have been pretty clumsy, falls off and dies. The other kids all flee, leaving Jesus by himself when Zeno's parents come up and accuse Jesus, saying, you troublemaker, you. You're the one who pushed him down. Like plenty of preteens, Jesus was pretty blunt. He said, Zeno wasn't being careful and leapt off the roof and died. And just to prove his point, Jesus hops down himself and shouts to the dead body, Zeno, get up. Tell me, did I push you? Zeno pops back to life and says, no, you didn't push me, you raised me up. And the crowd marvels and worships the young Jesus, and the book goes on. This rowdy little resurrection story was one of many ways in which the early Jesus movement tried to fill in the blanks in Jesus' life. Many of these stories are now lost, some we can still find, but perhaps only our story in Luke 2 made it into the canon because it taught us everything we really need to know. When Jesus says, have you not known that I should be in the house of my father? 
the story cues us into the importance that he belongs to a different household system. The passage finishes with that line about Jesus continuing to increase in wisdom and age and favor. To me, that evokes a montage type of scene at the end of Luke 2 before chapter 3 introduces adult Jesus. We may expect to turn the page and to find a Jesus who's grown up and found a job and started a family or is doing whatever one's expected to do to succeed within the rules of the Roman Empire, but instead we get something totally different. Jesus is not a good grown man, but instead is running around with his cousin John the Baptist, who does not quite have the conventional career. John has become a prophet, living in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, preaching some message about the coming kingdom of God. This is a dangerous message, as its language sounded a lot like the language Rome used to talk about its own kingdom. Anyone announcing that some other kingdom is coming, one that simply belongs to God, would be sure to worry Roman officials and risk their life. Yet Jesus picks this language up and begins saying that the kingdom of God isn't only coming, but that it's here. He begins to teach about and embody this message by healing illnesses and people that had kept them from participating fully in society and by feeding folk who were starving and struggling under a kingdom that kept them poor. Jesus taught people that they have access to God, not because of religious conformity or because of allegiance to the empire, but simply because of who God is. Jesus dedicates his life to this ministry, making this kingdom known, foregoing the path that might have been expected of anyone else born into his circumstances. Like 12-year-old Jesus, 30-year-old Jesus is not quite where you might expect him. He is off asking bigger questions and exploring new answers to the world that make others a bit worried. One of the big worries that many seminary students have right now is how to make the best sense of this word kingdom in today's day and age. The word kingdom is a bit anachronistic, especially for us in a nation that's trying to practice democracy. Some scholars say that the Greek word might be better translated as empire. It was originally the same word that Rome used to talk about itself, and the kingdom of God was, came to us as an idea of an alternative to the Roman Empire, an alternative system in which God's justice, wholeness, peace, and love were reality, and not just hope. Others have suggested that we create new language around this idea, and that we use the word kingdom instead of kingdom, leaving out the G. The realm of God is more like a family or kin than a kingdom, one in which everyone belongs and not where a king rules over his servants. The word kingdom, then, evokes an image that's less oppressive and hierarchical and is more like the God of eternal love in which we believe. However, I don't think that these two ideas are mutually exclusive. Rather, I think they're pretty connected. The Roman kingdom or empire relied on that household system being upheld in daily ways. House and family and kin were tied up and wrapped up in the business of the empire. To proclaim an alternative kingdom of God would be to proclaim an alternative household or family or kingdom of God. That's why I think we have this story in Luke as the one glimpse of the growing up years of Jesus that shows us that Jesus belonged to another household system, another kingdom, another kingdom, and that this belonging was evident and secure even in the early days of how he was navigating his own 
family. The more I watch Home Alone, the more I realize it is way more than a Rube Goldberg machine of making light of a family's mishaps. Kevin, the child who has left Home Alone, already feels at the beginning of the movie like he doesn't fit into his family. He's bullied at worst or ignored at best and constantly feels invisible. That's why when he realizes he's been left home alone, he's not worried, he's thrilled. The movie serves almost as an indictment on how his family system is so caught up in their own momentum that they can't see someone who it's making invisible, someone who has worth and presence that they're missing. The kingdom that Jesus lived into, even as early as his childhood story, is one committed to a different way of doing things and one that fundamentally does not miss those on the margin. Just a couple chapters later, Jesus proclaims that he has come to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and to let the oppressed go free. The Roman Empire proclaimed itself as a kingdom of peace, and the household systems within it were meant to be the pinnacle of how this peace was experienced by the people. But Rome had a lot of work to do before it knew anything that was truly peace. Up to four out of every five persons in the empire struggled with poverty, and these peaceful household systems themselves were so stratified that they afforded only a few people with any power. Most others just had burdensome responsibility. The kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed did things differently. He invited people into a new way of life that was not so hierarchical or domineering, but a way that was more mutual, whole-making, one in which everyone truly has enough, and one that creates true peace. One of the most taunting stories in recent holiday history to me is the Christmas Day Truce in 1914. During that first winter of the First World War, all across the Western Front, French, German, and British soldiers crossed enemy lines on Christmas to exchange gifts and greetings, and even to do things like sing carols and play football. At first, it's a beautiful image, all of these soldiers who are literally in the space to kill each other, putting down their differences and their defense to share a common holiday. But this story is also brutal to me that the next day they woke up and began fighting again, a war that was so bad our world said it would never happen again. What went on in the minds of those men on December 26th? After catching a glimpse of how things could be done differently, they went back to their systems of confrontation and of violence. The next year, some people tried a truce again on Christmas, but there was no real end to the fighting until four years later when the war was officially over. I think we miss it. We think that we have to wait for big occasions or high holidays to do things differently for one moment, or even to discover new ways to build the kingdom of God in our midst. Christmas Day and Christmas season come every year as a reminder that Christ is always being born into the world and that we are invited all year long to grow into the kingdom of God. Many of Jesus' early followers were convinced that they were going to be a part of the actual overthrow of the Roman Empire, which did not happen. Instead, the early church became this movement of microcosms of the kingdom of God, proclaiming that a new, life, new way of life was available and was possible, 
within alternative communities or alternative households, chosen families in which the new life was practiced, even when it did not come to characterize the entire world around them. We, too, can find ways to practice the kingdom of God in our world in everyday ways. I love how in Luke 2, Jesus' parents find him at that table of the teachers, asking questions and pondering answers. Sometimes that's how we access the kingdom, just by asking, how can this be done differently? In a world with systems that tell us that violence is just part of the equation, we can ask, how might we discover a peace so radically new that no one has to be hurt? In a world that tells us that there's only so much to go around and that profit and product define value, we can wonder how beauty and creativity might invite us into new and abundant ways of relating with one another. In a world with systems that keep making margins, we can ask how may things be done differently in our workplace, in our church, in our family, and across our city and country so that no one is left behind or ignored and that our human community can truly be a place of flourishing for everyone. Every day, we get chances to do things differently. We don't have to worry as we seek them out if we train ourselves to keep looking for where Christ might be sneaking off to in subtle moments. If we don't practice looking for these places, we may be going about our ways as normal and not even realize what we're missing. I missed my own chance this year to watch Home Alone 2 before Christmas. It may be my favorite sequel of all sequels. I love it, but... I always have a bit of trouble with how the McAllisters managed to do it again. It makes me wonder, did they not learn anything from those mishaps of that great Christmas the year prior? Or did Kevin even just wake up a few weeks into January still feeling ignored and cast aside? As much fun as he had on that New, year, New York adventure the next year, it did not need to be that way. I wonder for us, Will we say yes to the invitation to do things differently? Or will we wake up in a few weeks or in a year and realize that we've missed it? Amen.